Good morning again, everyone. Uh, you'll find that this part will be far less animated. I'm sorry, no more thumbs up. Well, maybe a thumb up or two, we'll see. Uh, before we jump into the sermon, uh, I too want to recommend a book. This one is for you to take for free. I'm going to give this away to someone. Um, this is a book called Delighting in the Trinity, and it is a fantastic book and an extremely easy book to kind of start thinking about how our God is three in one. If you have ever been confused by the Trinity, this book won't answer every single question, but it will answer a lot of questions and and help you see why God as three in one is actually really important for Christian life. There's uh, uh, three questions on the back with answers. I'm going to read them to you. It's very quick. Uh, But if this doesn't make you want to read this book, I don't know what will. Why is God love? Because God is a trinity. Why can we be saved? Because God is a trinity. How are we able to live the Christian life? Through the trinity. Sounds pretty good. So if you want that, uh, Hans normally just chucks it down there and you can sneak up and grab it. I want you to get it from me because then we can talk about how great it is afterwards. So uh, come see me if you want to grab this. Uh, it's a really fantastic book, really easy to read. If, if you can read, you can read this book. That's how simple it is. Uh, so I highly recommend it. How about we pray and then we'll jump into Isaiah 49. Father God, thank you that you have shown yourself to us to be three in one, a trinity. And I pray that now as we hear your word spoken to us, knowing that your word is your son Jesus, help us to listen and marvel at the wonder of your son. Father, would your words penetrate deep, not just into our ears and into our brains, but into our hearts, so that we might love you more, seek to obey you more, See your wonderful plan for all things and have that shape our lives all the more. Amen. Well, uh, with the passing of the Queen this week, uh, lots of people have been talking about her legacy and all the wonderful things she's achieved. And I must admit, before I heard the news of her passing, I'd already been thinking about leadership this week. I'd been thinking about uh, some of the great visionary leaders of the past, uh, and two came to mind. I'm going to share two of them with you. The first, Alexander the Great. Who here's not heard of Alexander the Great? I didn't think so. He is such a large name that I don't know anyone who wouldn't know who Alexander the Great is. Alexander, uh, the king of Macedon, built one of the largest empires in human history, stretching all the way from Greece to India. I didn't realise he'd reached India. He got all the way to India, down to Egypt. He he achieved so much, and a large part because of a vision. He had a vision, not not like an angel appearing to him saying, "Eh," but like he knew what he wanted to achieve. There was a future outcome that he was working towards, and that motivated him to, in the first instance destroy the Persians, who he was none too keen on, but then just conquer the whole world. And he got a decent percentage of the world under his belt. And all that before he was 34 years old. So I figure I've got three years left to do as much as he did. So clock's ticking, clock's ticking. What about another visionary leader? A different different leader in a different sphere, but still quite extraordinary. Steve Jobs. Does anyone here not know Steve Jobs? Okay, great, good. I'm speaking to the right audience. Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple and CEO of Apple for a long time. There's a bit of time where it's booted out. But then bravely and courageously, instead of just 
walking away from them forever, when they said, Steve, we need your help, he came back in and brought Apple from the brink of bankruptcy and, you know, just disappearing to being one of the most profitable organisations in the world. Uh, I'd say that probably most of us in this room have a product that he was part of the genesis of, whether it's a phone or a laptop or a computer. Uh, lots of us have Apple products. Now, he had a vision too. Again, not an angel speaking to him vision, but a vision of what he wanted to achieve in this world. Now, what he wanted to achieve was having a company that put people first. I don't know if he achieved that particular vision, but certainly he was very driven and made a small, dying company become this great tech giant, all because he had a vision, he had a mission, something he was working towards. And as I was thinking about some of those great leaders, I was considering, well, what's God's mission? What is God's vision for this world? What does he want to see achieved? Because I think, uh, you know, as as a follower of Jesus, I, I want to know what God's doing in this world so I can be on board, I can be working with him, not against him. But oftentimes we go, Jesus died on the cross, he rose back to life, he ascended to heaven, that's the big thing. But then now what? What's God doing now? He's already done that work of saving us and defeating death and ruling over us. What is there left to do? What is God working towards now in this age? Well, if you've ever asked that question, I don't know if I'm the only one that asked that, but uh, hopefully you've asked that question. And if you have, Isaiah 49 will give us those answers today and show us not just what God's doing, but how God's doing it and how we can be involved in it. So that's where we're going today. We're going to see what God is doing in this world. So let's, let's jump straight into Isaiah 49. In this chapter, we encounter a character, someone very unique, someone like no other. Verse 1, he is called by God since before he was even born. Verse 3, he is called God's servant, and through God's servant, God will display his splendor in him. Not many other people in history can make that claim about themselves. This is a very, very special person. We met him already a little bit in uh, Isaiah, in chapter 42, uh, the chapter that Liz was talking to us about earlier. There was this servant who was going to restore sight and heal the broken and bring justice to the world. Well, now we encounter again a servant of the Lord. So what do we learn about the servant here? What is the servant doing? Well, first, he is God's secret weapon. He's God's secret weapon. Look at verse 2 with me. Have your Bibles open. I'm going to keep coming back to it. It'll be really helpful for you to have them in front of you. Isaiah 49, verse 2. The servant says this about himself. He, that is God, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. And in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. Isaiah hears, as he talks about the servant, he's using warrior imagery. Imagery of a soldier preparing for battle. God is a soldier preparing for battle and getting his weapons all ready. Have you ever seen those scenes in war movies where the, the soldiers are getting ready for battle and, you know, they're, like, polishing their guns and they're loading up the bullets in the magazine. They, like, put them in, they're like, let's lock and load. That's what God's doing here, except not with guns, with swords. He's sharpening his sword, his weapon. 
he's polishing his arrowheads and hiding them in his quiver so that he is prepared for battle. Now, what does, what does this image mean? God's kind of preparing his weapons for battle. The servant is the weapons. Here's what it means, and here's my first point. The servant is God's chosen instrument to accomplish his purposes. The servant is God's chosen instrument to accomplish his purposes. The soldier has his swords and arrows. The carpenter has his hammer and nails. God has his servant. Now, we haven't seen yet what God is going to achieve with his servant, but we know how he's going to achieve it. His servant. His servant is his chosen means to accomplish his purpose. He will work through his servant. And in sharpening the sword and polishing the arrows, God is preparing his servant to be extremely effective. He's not coming in with a blunt sword and arrows that couldn't pierce skin. No, no. His weapon will be very effective. It'll be sharp. It'll cut to the bone. But that, interestingly, isn't the servant's experience of what happens. That's not how the servant experiences his work. Look with me at verse 4. The servant says, But I said, I have laboured in vain. I have spent all my strength for nothing at all. The servant's work, the servant, the sharpened sword, the polished arrow, his work is hard. It seems to accomplish little to nothing at all. What happened to the sharp, effective weapon that God had prepared? Why isn't it doing what the servant uh, wanted to do? Well, we need to keep in mind the second half of verse 4. Where are we? I've laboured in vain, I've spent all my strength for nothing at all, yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. The reward of the labours, of the servant's labour, rests with God. What's, what's he saying? What does it mean? In human estimation... As people look on at the work of the servant, it seems weak and in vain and not to be achieving much, if anything, at all. But in God's eyes, it is God's very purpose being achieved. The servant's work is in God's hand. His reward is coming from God because he really is that sharpened sword and polished arrow. But in God's eyes, not in humans' eyes, the work of the servant seems weak and foolish, but is actually the very work of God. I don't know if you've noticed as you've kind of driven around the area, but there's lots of houses that are knockdown rebuilds, right? You know, they, they get sold for a couple million bucks and then develop a knockdown rebuild. There's two of them in my street happening at the same time. My boys love it because there's been like diggers and concrete trucks and cranes and things. But the two houses have been developing very, very differently. The one directly across the street from us. Uh, very quickly a frame was put up and we can see the top of the frame over the trees, we can see the work there, they've got the scaffolding up, there's builders walking around on top. It came up very fast and very suddenly. But the one down the street, it has been months where kind of not much has happened. They, they were flattening the ground and then they dug some holes, they poured a bit of concrete, uh, they put pillars and a slab on the pillars and that's where they're at at the moment, just a slab on pillars. And it seems really slow and ineffective, like the labourers have been labouring in vain. But really, 
with all my kind of, you know, construction knowledge, I, I know the secret is they're laying the foundation of that building to be strong and firm. That the work, the, the real important work is hidden from sight, but it's important and it's effective. Now, I'm not saying that the first house will just fall down when the wind blows. I'm sure the builders did a great job there. But in the second house, that looks like not much is happening. Actually, really important work has been done. And that's what the servant is like. It doesn't look like much. It doesn't look like the servant is being effective. But in reality, it's God's very purposes being achieved. And since God is achieving his purposes in this world, in what looks like the foolishness of mankind, well, we need to trust that God's work is happening. We need to kind of take off our normal vision and look on upon it with spiritual vision to see that God really is at work. And there is nowhere more important to do this than on the cross. We read in John 19 uh, the account of Jesus' death, his crucifixion. Humanly speaking, Jesus died in shame and in weakness. What, what people thought was going to be the leader of a movement to restore Israel was hanging there, bleeding, suffering, dying on a cross. It looked weak, it looked shameful. In fact, according to the Jews, Jesus was under a curse for hanging on a tree. But do you remember what Jesus said as he hung on the tree? He said, it is finished. It is finished. What is finished? Well, not just his life, because he raises to, he's raised to new life, to live forever. His life isn't finished. It's his work. His work of saving people. Jesus hangs on the cross, not just suffering the nails in his hands and feet, but suffering the wrath of God for the sin of humanity on himself. The sin of you and me, so that we don't have to face it. He has faced it on our behalf. What looks like weak and shame and pitiful is actually triumph and victory and God's purposes being achieved. God uses the weakness of the cross to bring salvation to anyone who would trust in Jesus. And so if you're here today and you're exploring Jesus, you're kind of just checking him out, you don't know whether you want to throw your lot in with you know, us here yet or not, can I say that the most important thing that you get about Jesus is his work on the cross? That his death is a death on your behalf so that you don't have to suffer that same judgment that he suffered in your place. He wins salvation for anyone who would trust in him, so trust in him. He loves you and gave his life for you. Trust in him. Come to Jesus and be saved. But now let's come back to the servant. We know that God's servant is his chosen instrument to achieve his purposes in this world. What are those purposes? What is God achieving through his servant? We'll have a look at verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself, for I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. We see here that the servant's work is the work of restoring Israel, restoring Jacob. Two words, same people. God is restoring his people. Remember the context of Isaiah that we learned about last week? Uh, the Israelites, the Judeans, they're in exile 
away from their land, away from their temple, away from God. But God says, I'm bringing you back. You come back to the land. You will come back to me and you'll be my people again. Well, here it seems like the servant will be part of that work of bringing God's people back. But now look at verse 6. He says, that is God, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. The servant is so honoured by God, is so precious to God. God is going to display his splendour and glory in him so that the work of only restoring Israel is too little work. It doesn't show all of God's goodness and all of the glory and splendor of God. It doesn't show just how special and amazing God's servant is. He needs more than to simply do that. Do you remember after the Olympics last year, there was a little bit of like chatter, discussion about Olympians selling their gold medals? Uh, You know, like economic crisis, Olympians were starving, uh, so they sold their medals for cash. As, as I was reading about some of what happened last year, some people were saying, it's not new, it's been happening for a while. And I stumbled across the story of Mark Wells. Mark Wells was on the US ice hockey team in 1980, and they, that team won gold against Russia. And it was kind of like a, you know, 1980, Cold War going on, US versus Russia, ice hockey. It's not nukes, but it's still pretty tense. And the US won, and it was like this amazing victory, and the US was celebrating, and it was really significant. But Mark Wells, with his gold medal, because of a rare genetic disease he had and the medical bills that went along with it, he decided to sell his medal. He he couldn't afford to have something so precious just sit there. He needed money to pay for his uh, medical treatment. And so he sold it to a private collector. And when he sold it, he had a note attached. I'll just read out a little bit of the note, not the whole thing. This gold medal symbolises my personal accomplishments and our team's accomplishments being reached. As one of only 20 players to receive this gold medal, it has held a special place in my heart since February of 1980. And then he says some other stuff and he finishes with this. I hope you will cherish this medal as I have. And he sells the medal gets his cash. I don't really know what happened to him after that, but I know what happened to the medal. It it sat with that private collector for a number of years, and then in 2010, that private collector sold it on again. Now, when I hear about that, not not simply that he just sold it, but that it has been sold on again, and and I imagine it will get sold on again and again and again, making more money each time, it kind of just, it kind of ruins the legacy of that medal for me. That medal deserves more than just to pass from collector to collector to collector. That medal deserves to be worn by Mark Wells, who earned it. That medal deserves to be celebrated by that US hockey team who earned it and won it. It deserves more than to be sold around. Don't you feel it deserves more? Well, that is the servant. The servant deserves more than simply to restore Israel, as amazing as that is, He is far more amazing. He deserves far more, far better, more glorious. So what does he do? Come again, we'll read verse 6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. 
I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God's servant brings salvation not just to Israel, but to the very ends of the earth. It, it takes salvation not just from Palestine, but to all of Europe and Asia. Salvation to the States and to South America and to Australia and Sydney and Marsfield. God's servant has brought salvation here. That is what God's servant is doing. God is saving people. That is his mission. That is the vision that he's working towards. Salvation to the ends of the earth. And so, yes, the cross is a high point in that mission. Jesus came and died and he rose back to life and ascended to heaven and now reigns. But God is still doing the work of bringing his salvation to the ends of the earth. That's God's mission. That's God's purpose. That's God's vision for this world. He longs for the lost to be saved. Do you remember when uh, Jesus came to Jerusalem and he kind of crests the hill before Jerusalem and he sees the city in front of him? What does he do? He weeps. He mourns the city because he knows the people of the city are destined for destruction. Jesus longs for the lost of the Jerusalem to be saved. He knows they are destined for destruction and so he goes to the cross for them and dies for them. But not just them, for the world. As God's people, we need to have that same heart for the lost. We need to long for the salvation of all. We need to weep and mourn like Jesus did for the five million people in Sydney who are destined for hell, for the 25 million people in Australia, for the almost 8 billion people in this world, for the billions and billions more who have yet to be born, who one day will need to hear the good news of Jesus. God's mission is to save people. He sent his servant to save people. Is that what you long for too? Is that your vision and mission? Is that what drives your life? If, if you feel you can grow in your heart for the lost, and spoiler alert, we all can, I know I can too, then we need to ask that God would plant within us a deep, deep desperation. A desperation to see those who don't know Jesus come to know him as Lord and Saviour. We need to ask that God would help us to mourn for those who are destined for destruction. And you know what? Our God is good. He gives good gifts to his people. And you can expect that as you pray that prayer, not just once, but continually over time, God would give you that heart. God will give you that heart for the lost, the same heart that he has for the lost. Our God is good. Let's finally come to the last point and back to the servant in Isaiah 49. We're seeing the servant is God's chosen instrument to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But who is the servant? The obvious answer is Jesus, right? The servant is Jesus. But as we press a little deeper, actually, it's more complex than that. It's not as simple as that. Isaiah doesn't just talk about a servant, but really he's talking about Jesus and he can just swap the name in. There's more going on here. So who is the servant? Well, back in Isaiah 41 verse 8, you don't need to flick there, God calls Israel his servant. 
Israel, my servant. And in chapter 42, which is the kind of first in-depth look at the servant we see in Isaiah, uh, we see the servant will bring justice and righteousness to the nations and bring hope through teaching. Well, that's actually talking about Israel. Isaiah 42 is about Israel. Israel will be the light to the nations. Israel will be uh, the way that justice comes across the whole world. But then after 42, in 43 to 48, we come to realise that actually Israel are pretty dodgy. They are full of idolatry. They don't worship the Lord their God, they worship idols. And so God says, I'm taking your servant status from you. You will not be a light to the nations any longer. In fact, you will need a servant yourself to rescue you. Then in Isaiah 49, we meet a new servant. Another servant, a servant who will save the original servant. And here, more directly, we can see that Isaiah is talking about Jesus. The servant in 49 is talking about Jesus. Isaiah is pointing to Jesus, who will bring salvation to the ends of the earth, who has been chosen by God, who is going to do this hard labour that in human estimation will be weak, but in God's will be power and victory. That is Jesus. Jesus will rescue Israel and call them back. Jesus will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. But, come with me to Acts chapter 13. Flick over to Acts chapter 13 and have a look at what Paul calls himself. Paul is an apostle of uh, God. He uh, saw a vision of the risen Lord Jesus uh, and his whole life was turned around. He he used to persecute Christians but now preaches the Lord Jesus raised from the dead. And listen to how Paul understands his role in light of Isaiah 49. Uh, So, uh, Acts chapter 13, come with me to verse 44. Where are we? Uh, Paul, has, Paul has been going around with another guy named Barnabas. They've been going city to city to city, uh, preaching Jesus, raising from the dead, planting churches, uh, and, and doing this wonderful missionary work. But look what he says, uh, look what happens in verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost a whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That, That little... That command that they're fulfilling sounds really familiar. Paul and Barnabas, they are bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. In proclaiming the Lord Jesus, died and risen, reigning in heaven, they are bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. And they say they're obeying a command. The very instruction that was given to the servant of the Lord, you'll be a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul is saying, we are the servants of the Lord. Yes, Jesus is the servant of the Lord 
and we are the servants of the Lord. And as Paul says that about himself, he's really saying the church is the servant of the Lord. The body of believers are the servant of the Lord. It is through Christians that God will bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. We are the servants of the Lord. You and I are servants of the Lord. And our job is to bring salvations to the ends, bring salvation to the ends of the earth. We are God's servants. So not only should we simply just have a heart for the lost, we should be reaching the lost. We should mourn for the lost and then tell them the wonderful news of Jesus who saves them, who brings them back into relationship with him, who heals the brokenness of the world, who restores sight to the blind. We have an incredible privilege. God's vision and mission for this world is that salvation would go out. And he says, you, my church, get to be co-workers with me in this work. I will use you to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. We get to work with the eternal God in his mission. We get to be co-workers with Christ. What a wonderful, glorious purpose we've been given. And so, to serve God on his mission means... We are all missionaries. Every single one of us are missionaries. Not necessarily the go overseas missionaries, but the missionaries in Marsfield or in Epping or in Eastwood or or wherever you live. You are missionaries in your street. You are missionaries in your workplace. You are missionaries in your school community. You are missionaries in your kids' soccer club. You are missionaries wherever you go. Your favourite cafe your favourite park, you are a missionary there, you are God's chosen servant sent to that place to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. God puts us in these communities as his servant that we would bring the light of the gospel to them. What an amazing privilege. What a daunting task. How are we going to have success? Well, remember, success is measured by God, not by humans. So even if we feel like we're failing, God could use our efforts to do amazing things. And there's comfort in that. But also, God didn't just make Paul the servant, but Paul and Barnabas. God didn't just make those two the servant, but all Christians are the servant of the Lord. We all work together. I don't know if you've heard this uh, this phrase before, but mission is a team sport. Mission is a team sport. We are working together as a team to reach Marsfield, to reach the ride area, to reach Sydney, to reach... We work together as a team. And so, in those communities, in your street, your workplace, your kids' soccer club, wherever, connect with other Christians and work together. Don't work alone. Work together to bring the light of the world to them. At work, um, can you find other Christians at work and have once a week, once a month, a lunchtime Bible study together, where you invite others to come along, but you're together, doing that work together, praying for co-workers together. As you join a sports club, can you join the same team as other church families so that you might work together to bring the good news of Jesus into the lives of those families? That There's a couple of families here at church that are on the same soccer team and 
Um, one of them has said, I will coach the team. I, I will, I'll do this act of voluntary service for the team so that other Christians can spend time speaking to those there that don't yet know Jesus. Can, can you host a street party in your street with other Christians and invite everyone along and invite people to, I don't know, church, to carols, to Christmas stuff? Can you do it? Join, connect with other Christians around you in the different communities you're in to share the love of Jesus. Mission is a team sport. Don't go it alone. Do it together. What is God's vision for this world? So that salvation will reach the ends of the earth. That God's salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. God's servant is his chosen instrument, his sharpened sword, his polished arrow. Jesus, the servant, has died and risen back to life, bringing salvation to the world. Now, our job as God's servant is to take that salvation out to every nook and cranny of this world and bring the light of Jesus. Let me pray. Father God, thank you that you have invited us to this work of being a servant. Thank you that other servants have served us by bringing the good news of Jesus to us, whether it's our parents or friends or or random strangers we've met. We are so thankful that you've brought the light of the gospel to us here. And we pray now that we too would be servants. Give us a heart for the lost so that we would desperately seek to see them saved. Help us to work together as a team to reach others with the good news of Jesus. Father, would you do a mighty work here at Marsfield so that many, many thousands might come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Amen.